to Raw, the podcast, the cyber resilience podcast for all existing and aspiring cyber professionals, putting the spotlight on the vital role that people and culture play in making organizations cyber safe. Resilient and cyber savvy people are an organization's strongest defense against cyber crime. I am your host, Marilise de Villiers. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Raw. Today, I am delighted to be joined by Phil Zongo, all the way from Melbourne, Australia. Before I bring Phil onto the show, I'm going to tell you a little bit about him. Phil Zongo is the CEO and co-founder of the Cyber Resilience Institute, a global enterprise that has equipped cyber leaders from more than 50 countries with critical skills to accelerate change, influence decision makers, and deliver impactful presentations to boards. He is a global keynote speaker and the author of two best-selling books, The Gift of Obstacles and The Five Anchors of Cyber Resilience. And we'll, we'll hear more today about both these books. In 2017, Phil was invited um, to Chicago, USA, where he was honored with one of ISACA's highest global awards for major contributions to the field of IT governance and cyber security. In 2020, Phil was named one of the global top 100 most influential people of African descent. Hello, Phil, and welcome. Yeah, good morning, Marilis. Uh, uh, my pleasure uh, being here. Thank you so much. I know it's so early there where you are. I, in my introduction, I said Melbourne. I will correct myself. I know you, you, you're dialing in from Sydney. I am. Um, but yeah, it's six o'clock there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so wonderful, wonderful that you, uh, you got up especially early for me. So thank you so much. You're welcome. I'm gonna, I'm gonna dive straight in because I am so keen to hear more about you and, and your story. Because I, um, I have been looking into your, um, you know, your your background, and um, I know that in tw- 2007 you arrived in Australia with only $300 in your pocket, um, and 15 years later you are a multi, um, you know, award-winning cyber executive. So I mean. Amazing. Tell us, tell us a little bit more about your incredible journey. Yeah, thank you. Like I said, it's my pleasure to be here and uh, uh, privileged to be sharing uh, with your listeners my story of great grace and gratitude. Um, you know, originally I was born and raised in Zimbabwe. And uh, as I write clearly in my memoir, I grew up in um, abject poverty you know, I got my first pair of shoes when I was 12. I moved out to live by myself when I was 14. I lived in a dingy place uh, with no electricity, with no running water, with, uh, an un- with, uh, with, with, with a makeshift unlockable door, which means when I went to bed, I needed to lift my, my door and place it because it couldn't hinge either side. But anyway, fast track to 2007, I migrated to... Uh, to Australia and, you know, my life was filled with hope and anticipation. Uh, when I moved to Australia, I think my salary increased by more than 7,000%. Uh, 
which surprises wow. a lot of people. But, you know, to give you better context, I was earning less than 100 US dollars uh, in Zimbabwe um, by that time. And I was one of the, you know, most celebrated people from my area because I was working for Deloitte, which is a, a big four consulting firm. So I moved here to work with uh, PwC uh, and I spent three and a half years of my um uh, formative years in in cyber, sorry in in Australia with PwC, but you know the first few years were very difficult for me because, in as much as my economic prospects had uh, improved significantly, you know uh, that constant struggle to belong, uh, the deeply rooted belief that my odds to succeed here as an absolute minority uh, were razor thin. Uh, proved quite crushing. So after three and a half years, I resigned from my role at PwC. I sold my furniture. I terminated my lease and I flew back to Arare with no intentions of coming back to Australia. Fortunately, a strange twist of circumstance happened and I was forced to come back to Australia mid-2012 and uh, I worked briefly for Dimension Data and then spent about six years at AMP. But it was during my time at AMP towards the end of 2014, that's when I discovered that, you know, I was by that time I was working as a technology risk manager. I was presenting to the CIO and the IT executive team, but I realized deep inside that I was tinkering around the edges of my potential. So... This was time for me to reinvent and stop making excuses. So, you know, I just decided to revamp my mindset and my belief system and started my career acceleration journey. I spent a few months figuring it. What was it that would set, set me apart from my peers and make me the obvious choice, either to employers or to potential client prospects? Then I realized that if I was able to sharpen my business communication skills, specifically writing, I was, I was obviously, I would obviously be able to run away from competition, especially in technology. So I set myself on a journey to simplify complex technology matters to enable senior business executive to, uh, executives to make informed business decisions. So I started writing. My first article took me uh, three and a half months, and it was only three pages, but I stuck at it because for me, the stakes were too high for me to revert to my comfort zone. My second article was voted ISACA's uh, Global Article of the Year, which was on machine learning and artificial intelligence back in 2017. And that sparked, uh, you know, uh, a sudden turn in my career acceleration. And here we are now. So in those years, I won multiple awards, like you said, and, uh, you know, I'm still going. Yes, and it's, it's wonderful because you, you've had to recognize your own power that you have. And uh, I always say, you know, it, 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 it's important that we get out of our own way. And, and it's when you started, you know, believing in yourself um, that, that things started falling in place. So you used three words, which I absolutely love. And I know it's part of the title of your amazing book as well. So um, your book, The Gift of Obstacles, um, a memoir of grit grace and gratitude 
So um, you've used those three words right at the beginning, and I know those words are dear to you. Um, that's your, you know, like I can I can just sense how deeply the meaning are those words. Um, tell us a little bit more about grit, grace, and gratitude. What does each of those mean to you? Yeah, thank you. Uh, so obviously it starts with grit, and like you said, a thing that I discovered early uh, in my life was, you know, I was definitely fortunate to be able to get access to a better school. But like I said, this school was 23 kilometers away from home. And I ran to school barefooted uh, on Monday mornings, even during uh, freezing winters. Um, uh, and uh, I ran back home on Friday nights. And at first, those runs were very difficult for me. I wasn't trained to run half marathons. But I realized that the more I ran, uh, uh, it actually became second nature. I just took off and kept running. And, you know, uh, that muscle grew. And for me, that was the beginning of understanding. A lot of people gave up, obviously. They made excuses that Rio Tinto, which is the school I was going to, was too far. So they were better off at a village school that was staffed of books. And, uh, you know, more often the teacher had only one book that he read for the kids in front of them. And then you go home, you have nothing to read. But I realized that for me, my hope lie in the township, which was 23 kilometers away. And like I described before, the place that I lived, uh, it was one room, but it was part of a three-room structure. And two of those rooms were used by two of the most hardened prostitutes in the growth point. They brought in so many strange men during the nights and, you know, they they fought. You know, when the clients refused to pay, they tried to fight back only for them to have their braids literally plugged out of their heads. So at a very young age, I got exposed to uh, so much domestic violence. You know, uh, they never beat me up or anything, but all these things were happening right in front of me. When I came back home uh, during the night, um, you know, I quickly prepared my meal. You know, I set up a fire and prepared a small meal. And then I ran back to school because I didn't like being at home. There was no electricity anyway. So I ran back to school. I went to school twice. And that for me became a formidable advantage. So I managed to turn my proverbial lemons into lemonade. I started to compete with in science and mathematics, you know, areas that were previously weak sports. I turned them into my core strengths. So that's why for me, you know, grit is maybe the anchoring principle, you know, being willing to go as far as I can without forfeiting defeat uh, or, you know, throwing in the towel uh, because I realized that a lot of things in life are just like that. You know, habitually we give up too early. We think this is too hard, but someone said, you know, there's a quote that I came across a few years ago that stuck with me, which says, through repeated exposure, the brain learns not to be afraid. So the more you do things uh, and you just apply yourself, to the process, uh, the better it becomes. Then comes grace. Grace for me, you know, is, you know, a lot of people call it, uh, you know, some call it lucky or fortunate or whatever, but I call it grace because uh, when I was 14 years old, um, 
some German citizen took a bet on my life. And this is a lady I have never met up until now. I was supposed to travel and meet here in Italy uh, on my 40th birthday, but just two weeks before uh, COVID happened. And uh, back I am here now planning to meet her again. So she was supposed to be part of my story in my book. So anyway, she sponsored my fees for six years and gave me one of the rarest opportunities from where I come from, because where I come from, people don't come this far. A lot of them don't even go to Harare. They don't even go to Johannesburg, let alone come to Sydney and be able to compete at a global scale. So she gave me, you know, a, a rare opportunity to be able to uh, tap into my potential and discover my boundless potential. And that's why I am here. So my journey is obviously uh, a result of my own determination and willingness to push boundaries. But also I received a lot of help from other people, including my aging parents who sacrificed so much to give me and my other siblings, uh, you know, access to education. I tell a story in my book where my father had his favorite dog, which was called Jury, uh, which he, he, he boasted about in his hunting escapades. It was like the best in the savannah. But he, 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 he had to exchange it with a goat so he could pay fees for my brother, you know. So those were some of the sacrifices that they, they had to make. So that's why for me, you know, greet grace then lastly it's gratitude um when i was running uh 23 kilometers to school monday mornings uh when i was maybe around 15 kilometers into my journey i encountered kids who were running at tremendous speeds in the opposite direction literally running to the uh, same village school that i was running away from which was devoid of hope in as much as Rio Tinto, the school that I went to in the growth point, was much closer to their villages, their parents could only manage to send them to the same village school that I was running away from. So in as much as my situations were very difficult, when I looked at the world through the eyes of those kids, you know, my heart was overwhelmed with gratitude. I realized how fortunate I was. In as much as this was a this was a this was a difficult journey, if I stuck at it and I focused on my education, eventually my circumstances would be able to change, and that's why I'm sitting down with you today. So you know, the same thing when I moved to Australia, like I said, when I started revamping my career journey, I wrote maybe around. Uh, seven reasons why I wasn't being able to succeed here as a, uh, as a minority. And then I relabeled every of those into excuses. You know, I decided to look into, uh, you know, to, to see the donut, not the hole. So, you know, previously, all these opportunities that were masked to me because of the bounds of my own belief system, I started to see opportunities as many as the sand of the seashore. So for me, gratitude is a very powerful virtue. It allows me, it gives me a lot of happiness. You know, we go through a lot of things in life. You would see in my book, it's obstacle after obstacle. But, you know, having a, a sense of gratitude helps you to see the world in a much, much different way. Phil, that is, it's so beautiful. And I want to take a moment to honor you um, and to thank you for for sharing your your story with the world, um, I 
I know that you are inspiring um, millions and millions of people and, you know, will be in the future as well, because I think, you know, to speak with so much vulnerability and to come from such a vulnerable place for me really is the um, the hallmark of courage. And um, yeah, I just want to take that moment to celebrate you and to honor you. And what a beautiful, beautiful story. And what what a beautiful way to to presence with everybody this idea that you know everything in life is about perspective and about the way you look at it and you can look at the same thing with a much you know with a with a problem mindset or with a solution mindset and if you bring gratitude if you kind of pepper it with gratitude and with grace um you know there is just no way that you'll see the hole um i think you use this um, analogy of you see the donut you don't see the hole i love that i absolutely love that yeah yeah yes. so massive thank you you've touched my heart so deeply now thank just by, by listening to you i am so touched and um as a as a fellow South African um, who come from a very privileged background, um, a fellow African, I should say, um, who comes from a very privileged background, um, yeah. who, 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 who didn't have any of those obstacles, you know, it's, it's always really quite, and, I, and I'll, be, I'll be vulnerable for a moment because I feel, I feel a deep sense of guilt sometimes for that. Um, but when you spoke about the kids that were running the opposite way and you were looking at yourself from a place of privilege, um, I just thought, you know what, every situation we can look, look at it from that place of privilege, can't we? Yeah, yeah, we can. We can. Absolutely. We can. Almost every situation. So I'm going to go back. I'm going to switch us now into cybersecurity and the world of cybersecurity and um, really um, picking up on two hats that you wear. So I know that you're the CEO and co-founder of the Cyber Leadership Institute. Wonderful, wonderful organization that I'm also part of. And then the, um, you know, just the fact that you're an award-winning CISO and that you do a lot of consultancy work, you're, you're, you're a virtual CISO. Um, so obviously you bring a wealth of experience. And um, first of all, just wanted to, to see what you love about being a CISO. Yeah, thank you. Uh, there's two reasons why I absolutely enjoy what I do. Number one is obviously... Uh, over the last few years, cyber risk has zoomed to the top of every corporate risk profile. So, um, you know, that gives me rare access. So as a CISO, I do have uh, access to uh, present to the board of directors and give them assurance that we I have got a good understanding of where our critical blind spots are. And more importantly, that I have established a high-impact uh, cyber transformation project to close those critical risks and to accelerate change. So for me, that's, again, you know, it's a rare opportunity. It's a privilege for me to be able to interact with uh, these corporate directors, some of whom sit on uh, some of the largest ASX companies here in Australia, uh, I also have got access to present to a wide range of external stakeholders, including new client prospects, and evangelize our cybersecurity capabilities and, and position cybersecurity as a strategic business enabler. Uh, I present cyber risk to our uh, insurance underwriters, 
to business partners and to a, a range of internal stakeholders. So for me, you know, that's what I love doing, you know, uh, being able to again go back to my original mission of uh, simplifying, uh, demystifying cybersecurity and passing on practical and simple guidance to senior business leaders so that they can make informed decisions. So in my role as a CISO, that's the number one thing. Then the second thing that I like about my virtual CISO is obviously dealing with ambiguity. So uh, I work alongside my business partner, Jan, whom you know very well. And uh, we we are hired as virtual CISOs mostly by companies that are at the um, in the formative years of their cybersecurity journeys, we get in, we, we quickly identify their critical risks, and then we come up with a cybersecurity strategy to, again, to accelerate change in the next uh, six to 18 months. Then we move to the next client prospects once we move them to uh, 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 a reasonable level of, ma- of maturity. So for me, that's what I like. I like dealing with uh, ambiguity, starting with a blank piece of paper. That's why I like writing books because that's exactly, you know, is the creativity that comes with it. It's no situation is ever the same in cybersecurity. Sometimes you are hired by a company because uh, they have had their application for cyber insurance rejected or they have, uh, they've got threat actors deep into their network. So, you know, being able to lead with courage during a crisis, again, it's an opportunity to boost my credibility as a cyber leader and also learn straight from the trenches. So that's what I love about my job. It's being able to interact with the most senior business stakeholders, being able to um, position uh, the organization in good faith with our external stakeholders and being able to solve complex unknown unknowns. That. And I think um, I, as, as someone who work with within, that, within the that. trenches day to day as well, I think, you know, I can absolutely relate with with all of the above. <laughs> I love the, um, the, the strong yeah. presence around effective communication yes. and enabling the business to kind of make better decisions and, you know, that sort of, external commercial perspective that you bring i think it's so important and i think that's how the role of the CISO is also changing you know it's a very very um much more strategic you know um business enabler role today compared to a, a short few years ago and it's, it's accelerated really really quickly hasn't it and and i think that's why the work um, the cyber leadership institute does as well around enabling individuals CISOs to be become those leaders you know with much much you know better communication skills presentation skills um commercial skills i think it's 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 so timely and um just incredible um incredibly valuable as well so yeah. So tell me a little bit about, so what would you say, so any, any CISO that's sort of struggling to navigate, you know, because I think it's, 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 it's helpful sometimes to label the problems, the obstacles. And, um, you know, I think it's sort of fitting to kind of link this to almost like to your book in terms of the gift of obstacles, because, you know, we look sometimes at obstacles and as a CISO, you know, we face many obstacles every day. Um, but what would you say are some of the biggest obstacles that we have to deal with and and you've mentioned ambiguity i think that's probably the one that for me stand out 
the complexity and the ambiguity. But what, but what else? Okay, I like that because I touched it uh, during my keynote back in Jobbeck. So uh, for me, there's maybe two or three that stands out. Number one is, um, I think by nature, a lot of CISOs, and I went through the same transformation, they hail from technical backgrounds. And without the self-awareness, uh, unfortunately, a lot of cyber leaders we deal with, they stick their heads in the sand like ostriches. And they pay dearly, you know, in... You know, when, when you transition from a, uh, a technical role into a leadership role, uh, there's so much, uh, that's a huge transition. But unfortunately, in their inability to detach themselves from operational and technical decision making, they abdicate their strategic stakeholder management responsibilities and they pay dearly. It is well documented that the success of any major transformation program hinges on one thing, the unwavering support of the most senior business stakeholders. And without that support, uh, their cyber transformation programs are quickly thrust into rough waters or they crash during takeoff. So for me, that's the major, major problem, inability to navigate complex and entrenched political systems turn detractors into supporters and being able to create that shared sense of purpose. A lot of cyber leaders struggle with that. So that's number one. Uh, the second issue lies, again, goes back to uh, the CISO world. Uh, unfortunately, uh, a, a subset of CISOs that we have collaborated with, they make the strategic mistake of, um, you know, uh, over-promising. They position themselves as technical virtuosos uh, during the interview process who can quickly eradicate all the major risks, including some high-rated matters that have set on the corporate risk register for years. Uh, and once they join the organization, they quickly realize that, you know, drafting beautiful um, uh, strategies on PowerPoint slides with external consulting firms is the easy bit. Execution is a different ball game. Without understanding the lay of the land and some of those major obstacles that they need to understand around culture, technology obsolescence, uh, team, and the like, uh, you know, they underpromise. So, what I, I use an analogy in the Cyber Leadership Institute that. Do not promise a Lamborghini and then deliver a Toyota Corolla. The Corolla itself is not a bad car, don't get me wrong. But because you have set unrealistic promises from the start, it's very, very difficult. Once your credibility flies through the window, it's very hard for you to get it back. So credibility is the currency of the CISO. So CISOs must make sure that they develop a, a deep understanding of the lay of the land before they commit to the board of directors. The last bit uh, is, uh, unfortunately, um, some CISOs are simply hired to tick the box. The board of directors or the CEO is either pressured by external stakeholders, business partners or investors to fill this important role because obviously almost every organization needs a CISO now. But the move itself, unfortunately, represents only form, not substance. And once these CISOs move into these ceremonious positions, they 
struggle to overcome the inertia that is exerted by toxic organizational cultures. And uh, to borrow the words of Peter Drucker, those toxic organ organizational cultures will eat your cybersecurity strategy for breakfast. And in those cultures, the CISO's views are quickly shut down. Their budgets are underfunded. And, um, you know, uh, they eventually, they just feel like glorified systems administrators. So you can see that, you know, the, the challenges themselves are not technical in nature. It's about winning people's hearts and minds, turning detractors into supporters, and being able to set up a realistic roadmap. So those are amazing. Yeah. Uh, those are great insights. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much, Phil. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm so pleased to hear about the positioning around leadership, but also the, you know, recognition that, you know, if the CISO is brought in to tick a box, you know, and it's sort of competing with a toxic culture, um, you know, that, that, that they can never succeed. So it is about really how how do we um, also um, look at the organization and, and, and actually enable the organization influence the organization um, to view this as a, as a more strategic business business opportunity I'm going to switch now to the uh, the second best-selling book you you have um, so the the five anchors of cyber resilience and I want you to please tell us a little bit more about that book as well okay thank you uh, so when uh, like I said before, by training, I'm a technology risk professional. I spent way more than a decade in technology risk. But around um, uh, 2013, I decided to transition into cybersecurity because I felt like in technology risk, I was a jack of all trades and master of none. I wanted to... Um, be good at one thing and do it very well. And obviously that thing was cyber, cyber security because I knew that after a few years or in a decade's time, cyber will be a very important risk to so many businesses. So I transitioned into cyber security and, you know, I've got very strong ambition. So I started reading every piece of article, white paper book that I could find in cyber security but I was so frustrated that I couldn't find a book that could explain cyber risk in business terms and tie it back to the broader why of the business. So for me, again, that became that obstacle became an opportunity. I decided to write this book. I wrote this book for myself because I knew that, you know, I'd spent so many years in technology risk. I needed to accelerate my learning as well so I could close the gap between uh, me and my peers. So I spent 18 months writing this book every day. I went through more than 230 references. I named it the five anchors of cyber resilience, two reasons, you know, cyber resilience. I wanted to help shift that narrative from cyber security to cyber resilience because, you know, we spend years building or the, spending millions of dollars in perimeter defenses, but yet still we keep losing ground to sophisticated and well-resourced attackers. So I wanted to change that mindset, you know, so we start thinking about resilience. When the inevitable happens, when the bad guys are in the door, how can we quickly recover the most important business lines and retain customer trust? So that was the reason. And why five anchors, not 10 anchors? I, again, I believe this is something I believe at a personal level, that effectiveness requires extreme focus. So 
with limited budgets uh, for CISOs. It's always better to optimize that by spending that money towards your areas of highest risk and your most important um, um, your most important business line. So I I zeroed into these five anchors, and I will quickly summarize what they are. So anchor number one is creating uh, a high impact cyber resilience strategy that is focused on your crown jewels which are your most important digital assets, you know, those systems that underpin your competitive advantage, intellectual property, trade secrets, and most importantly, the products that your customers value the most. The second anchor was trying to shift away from this belief that we can buy ourselves into cyber resilience by, you know, ramping up technology defenses. So the second anchor is how do we create a cyber savvy workforce and create those deeply entrenched belief systems that protecting our organizations from the rising menace of cyber crime is everyone's responsibility from the board of directors to frontline staff. Then the third anchor is around, uh, you know, how do we bake cyber security or cyber security into the DNA of the enterprise? So this is secure by design. When we are developing new digital products, how do we bake in cybersecurity from the start instead of trying to retrofit cybersecurity because then that becomes 10x more expensive. Uh, then the third anchor is, uh, sorry, the fourth anchor is pretty self-explanatory, is creating lean and agile governance processes, which means uh, cybersecurity uh, sorry, cyber risk is the responsibility of the most senior business stakeholders and the board of directors. So how do we create that, uh, you know, layered governance structure to make sure that cybersecurity uh, accountabilities are clearly spe spelled out and we set the right tone at the top? Uh, then the last one is obviously supply chain. A lot of cyber cybersecurity, high-impact cyber breaches emanate from poorly secured third parties or business partners. And again, um, as a CISO, I always struggle because we are dealing with dozens, if not hundreds, of suppliers. So how do we create a differentiated cyber assurance model so with a limited budget we can focus again on high-risk suppliers like those that have got remote access to our network? That, that is amazing. And I love that you've actually... Um written a book because you couldn't necessarily find the answers and um what what again what another gift uh gift to the community because that is such a that is such a holistic um strong five anchor list and um you know i, I think you know when when i when i listen to that and i always I always look at things from a very strategic, holistic perspective. I'm like really struggling to pick any holes <laughs> holes in that. So amazing. Well done. No, that's incredible. And um, I'm really pretty sure, I'm pretty sure that um, wh whoever's listening to this today is going to go away with lots of very, very helpful learnings. And um, um, we'll also um, probably go and quickly buy, buy the book. I buy both books, I hope. <laughs> um, yeah, it's amazing. Um, so um, what, I mean, if we just pick up on the theme of grit and resilience, I'm very conscious that, you know, as a CISO, we navigate very, very stressful environments every day. It's not, you know, um, 
it is ambiguity, as we said, the complexity, um, the, the often sort of the pressure, you know, we, we, we talked about the pressure, that sort of daily pressure. What, what can CISOs really do to strengthen that resilience muscle every day? Yeah, okay, great. Uh, there's two, two things. Uh, number one is obviously um, I'll share my own experiences you know, I always, uh, I have created what I call a list of what I call non-negotiable habits. Um, so I talk about non-negotiable cybersecurity controls in the five anchors, but I also have got at a personal level non-negotiable habits, which means I spend, you know, you've got to spend time to yourself because you can't give from an empty cup. I clearly explained that the role of a CISO is to lead with courage, is to inspire high performance. Mm. And you can only do that from a place where you have got something to give. So for me, what I encourage people is I, I read a lot. I try to read a book every week or maybe a book every fortnight when I'm busy, depending on my schedule. But, you know, when I read books, I I rarely read books on cybersecurity. I read books from other strategic domains because, as you would appreciate, cyber the CISO the CISO space is fairly new and maybe maybe ten years old. Uh, but other domains like the CFO, the Chief Risk Officer, and new CEOs have been uh, you know around for hundreds of years. So I try to learn from what other people did very well in those areas of strategic leadership and bring it to my own space. But more importantly, I read a lot of uh, books about personal resilience. Uh, so one of the books that I strongly recommend uh, is called You Can't Hate Me by David Goggins. Uh, so I read books like that. So, you know, I can just harden my mind, you know, through routines and just internalizing some of those really powerful principles but the other end as well so it's not just about me you know so i've got those routines to spend time to myself to exercise to play golf i play a lot of golf i used to play once every week but i'm, I'm gonna be back into it but the other end comes back to the sea so you're gonna be smart and that's what we teach people at the cyber leadership institute i'll give you a quick example here when I joined as a virtual CISO in one of my gigs, um, I realized that the previous approach of trying to build a 24-7 uh, monitoring uh, center internally was deeply flawed because it was very difficult to hire people in an army of cybersecurity threat responders, uh, threat intelligence, mm -hmm. cybersecurity incident responders, and malware reverse engineers. It's almost impossible. So I decided to outsource that capability to an organization that could do that at scale and at a much lower cost. And it took us eight weeks to build a 24-7 uh, monitoring center using the same platform that was used by the Bank of America and se several Fortune 500 companies. So just that idea to say we can't do everything in-house, we need to outsource a lot of cybersecurity initiatives can be delivered at higher quality and lower cost if you outsource that. That's why normally I get surprised a lot of CISOs are working 24-7. Why? Because you're trying to do so many things. You can't delegate your work. You need to be able to let go, empower your team, your managers to make important decisions. So the more I am able to let go, the more I have free time for my own personal development. 
So by outsourcing and delegating and empowering my team, um, uh, that really helps. So it's, um, you know, it's a two-sided coin. Focusing on myself, but Absolutely. also creating time so, on my on my busy first schedule. First of all, making time for yourself. You can't pour from an empty cup. But then also really thinking about how do you lead from the front and how do you outsource and you delegate and you enable and empower your teams to deliver. I love that. That is such a well, again, such a well-rounded, yeah. considered answer. And um, you know, this is the, these kind of answers don't come from just conceptual knowledge. This is your experience that you bring, and you live and breathe this stuff. And 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 so, I really just want to again, you know, say, amazing no, and thank, thank you, you for that because um, <clears throat> this is really, really valuable. And um, I think the work that you do with the Cyber Leadership Institute. So, I just want to briefly touch on that because I'm I'm conscious of time. I'm loving this conversation. I can carry on. I can carry on for a very, very long time, um, but I just wanted yes, to sort of just yes. very curious to sort of understand where where everything started with the Cyber Leadership Institute and sort of what is the big the big dream and the big mission um, for you guys. Okay, thank you so much. I'll be quick. So again, it comes back to the same theme that we've been covering in the last uh, forty plus minutes. Um, the Cyber Leadership Institute was born out of pain and obstacles. Uh, so when I landed my first CISO role uh, about five and a half years ago, you know, I was I was afraid of failing. The cybersecurity world was heavily siloed. My executive networks were skinny. I had no one to tend to. And I spent months Googling and downloading uninspiring PDF policy documents from American universities. So again, you know, the challenges and the solitude that characterized my formative years in cyber leadership inspired me uh, and two other, you know, industry veterans. So two of my co-founders you're familiar with, Darren Argyle, who is uh, a global chief information risk officer at uh, uh, Standard Chartered Bank and Jan Schroeder, who is a retired partner at PwC uh, and a veteran in cyber strategy. Uh, he's been doing, he was doing it for 37 years in PwC. Uh, so we came together and we envisaged uh, this organization called the Cyber Leadership Institute, uh, which could do uh, two things. So our, our vision is very, is very bold. We would like to create uh, a closely bonded community of cyber leaders who actively collaborate and challenge the status quo uh, to drive positive change within their environments uh, and you know help accelerate the creation of a resilient digital ecosystem. So our aim is to create a closely bonded community of 10,000 cyber leaders uh, uh, by the year 2025. Uh, so that's very bold. So we started off with our cyber leadership program uh, with only five people in the first class and maybe only two paying customers. But now, you know, I'm, I'm very pleased to say we have uh, had graduates from more than 50 countries um, and still counting, including some senior executives from the World Economic Forum, Nike, HSBC, MTN, Old Mutual, uh, the U.S. Air Force, the Australian government, Commonwealth Bank, uh, again to mention, but a few. So that is our that is our our, our ambition. You know, 
we are building this around a concept that you are well familiar with, which is the concept of Ubuntu, uh, which means I am because you are. We realize that, you know, as individuals, you know, our achievements are inconsequential. But when we come together, there is a, a powerful African proverb again, which says, sticks that are put in a bundle cannot be broken. So when we come together as, uh, you know, like-minded change makers from different backgrounds, gender, diversity, uh, ethnicity, we are able to, uh, you know, what we can achieve is, is, you know, no obstacle can stand in our way. So that's what we are building with the Cyber Leadership Institute. It's an incredible wealth of resource, but, but also Thank you for your support. and, you know, so much respect for you, Jan and Darren, you know, you guys are powerhouse <laughs> and uh, we'll, we'll get to that 10,000, we'll get to that 10,000 um, sooner soon rather than later. Wow, so I'm going to finish this conversation with a yeah. little bit of an extract from your poem, Dear Savannah. Do you just want to tell people yes. what, what is a, uh, what is the savannah? And then I will summarize just a short Ooh. paragraph from, from there. Oh, no, great. So the savannah is where I grew up. It's rural Africa. Um, yeah, so it's very dear to my heart where I used to go out and head kettle for my father. Uh, you know, I faced some of the most formidable obstacles in the savannah and that's where my resolve was hardened to keep going in the face of obstacles. So, yeah, I'll hand that back to you. I'm curious on what passage you picked. You taught me that I can be what I can't see. You thrilled me and terrified me at the same time. The first day I stumbled into your grasslands, I was fragile as a baby gazelle, but I left tougher than the Tas Tasmanian devil. I'll forever be grateful to you for the grit of obstacles, the long and winding journey of grit, grace, and gratitude. Phil, with that, I want to I want to say thank you to you, and um, I want to um, really um, honour again your brave, brave heart and your incredible, um, kind heart, and the amazing work that you do in the world, and especially in the cybersecurity industry. Um, Really just a massive, massive thank you. Um, so if you want to get in touch with Phil, um, you can find him on his website, philzongo.com or at the cyberleadershipinstitute.com um, or on LinkedIn. So Phil on LinkedIn is Philemon Zongo. Is that is that the correct pronunciation? Yeah, sure. Brilliant. Thank you. Thank you. Phil, thank you so much again for joining me today. And um, yeah, keep up. Keep up the amazing work. <laughs> and uh, we'll talk yeah, soon. No, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you so much. I really enjoyed talking to you. And again, you know, we talk of gift of obstacles. So one of the best things in the Cyber Leadership Institute is, you know, that's where we met. And uh, we appreciate your support big time, you know in as much as we haven't really figured out how to work together. But, you know, you, you're genuine. And we talk about you in your absence. We appreciate, oh. we appreciate you. And uh, oh. yeah. 
that means so a lot. That means... We can yeah. <laughs> that means a lot and, 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 and that to me, you know, I, I absolutely love love the Ubuntu philosophy as well. So um yeah, yeah. I, I know this is going to be a, we I see a, a bright future for us and also um for me it's yes. all about yeah. it's all about making making um a, the world a better place and a kinder place. My whole my whole life philosophy is around bringing more kindness into the world. Um, so uh, we're, we're on. You do, and you do. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> Brilliant. So, thanks for tuning in. We hope you found today's episode useful and took away a few key points. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast to get our latest episodes. To find out more how we can help your organization strengthen its resilience muscle and find your raw, head over to marilise-der-videos.com.